You can, you can get off to Sunday school. Now remember, Deb has uh, been on vacation, so try not to be too rowdy for her. Uh, just before we begin here, we're going to invite the guys up for the offering. Uh, you, can, you can give here, of course. You can give online as well if, uh, if you would prefer uh, to do it that way. But let me just, uh, just mention an announcement quick here. Is How many of you have read about the fires in, in northern uh, Alberta? So Shayla's brother-in-law um, is a pastor of our most northerly church in Canada, in Fort Vermilion, Alberta, and they just got evacuated yesterday, uh, so they're not holding service this morning. Um, many of the community has been displaced from their homes, and uh, of course, it's all farming, right? So everyone's very worried uh, up there. So we're going to pray for that church, uh, for the family, and, and of course, other, other communities that are being affected uh, by that this morning. Uh, so th- their church is Faith Gospel Fellowship. Um, so if you just want to think of them in, in the coming weeks here, um, yeah, it's hard to, hard to imagine uh, what they're, they're going through. But let's just spend the next moments uh, in prayer, and then, and then we'll get into our, our sermon this morning. God, thank you for who you are, for all that we have just sung to you, for what you have done for us. God, you are, as was already said, you are worthy of all of our praise. We are so thankful that Jesus willingly went to the cross, that he became our substitute, that he might die so that we would not that we might have eternal hope. And so, God, I pray for each one this morning here that that we would consider our eternal destiny, that we would look at where we're going to spend eternity, that we would consider what it means that Jesus was our sacrifice on the cross for us. Would that become something that causes us to ponder, to think, to consider the implications of, and, and would it change the way in which we, not, not just the way we live, but even the way that we think about who we are and what you have done for us. So God, as we spend these next moments opening your word, would you reveal truth to us that are there in the pages, that, that are your words written to us that we might understand your character, who you are, what you are calling us for and what to do. God, we pray that we would be your ambassadors on this earth, that others would see Jesus in us and that they would want that hope that we have. God, this morning we want to think of our brothers and sisters uh, up north in Fort Vermilion at the church there as they as they don't get the opportunity to meet this morning, as they've been evacuated and, and many of them wondering what's happening to their homes, their land, and their animals. We pray for them. We pray that you would bring rain. We pray that the fires would be able to be contained and that they would go out. But God, we know you are a God who uses tragedy and crisis in ways that we cannot fathom. And so we pray that somehow that the churches would gather together, that they would lift you up and that that somehow the gospel message would go out amidst this pain and hurt. 
God, we pray for Pastor Mike and Steph and their family. Would you keep them safe and would you use them mightily in these days? That they would point others to Jesus. God, for other communities that are dealing with the uncertainty of, of, evic- of, of evacuation, uh, we just pray for them, pray for families, we pray for comfort for those who are scared. And we just ask that you would contain these. God, here in our own community, in our own town, we, we saw um, what can happen so quickly, even just a little prescribed burn that gets out of control. And so, God, as we've been talking for months now, you are sovereign and you are in control of all things. And so help us to trust in you, especially when things go in a direction that we don't expect. And so, God, for those this morning who are hurting, those who are struggling with doubt or fear, anxiety, challenges with family or friends or in the workplace, Whatever the issue or struggle is that we're facing this morning, may we give it back to you and may we trust that you can do all things and that you are in control of all situations. May we not try and fix it in our own power and our own strength, but would we trust you for the wisdom wisdom that doesn't come from us, but wisdom that comes from you. God, for those this morning in our community who are unable to be here, those who are traveling or those who are homesick or, or who aren't able to get out and, and come to a, the service corporately, we just pray for them that they would know that they are loved and cared for by you first and foremost, but by their church family as well. For those who need healing, we pray that you would bring that to their bodies, to their minds that you would strengthen and encourage them even even through this morning's message. God, we pray for our visitors, those who have come uh, to join us this morning. What an encouragement it is that they have taken time out of their holiday to come and to worship you corporately. Would you bless them for their efforts for coming? Would you keep them safe as they visit the park here? And, And would you give them traveling mercies as they head home? God, for all that you are doing, which we only know such a small piece of, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control. As we give back to you of our tithes and our offerings this morning, uh, God, we know all of it belongs to you anyway. That you have gifted it to, to us that we might steward it well, not for our own enjoyment, but for the service of others, for our community as a whole. And so, God, we pray that as we give back to you, that you would take it and that you would use it the way that you see fit. God, would you bless the gift and the giver this morning. As we open your word now, we pray that you would show us what you want us to see. Be with us in these moments. Amen. All right, you can, uh, you can flip to Exodus 17, and, and for those of you visiting, let me just really quick, you quickly catch you up on, on what you've missed so far. Um, we started Exodus here uh, the last Sunday of 2022, and, and I promise my goal is to finish by the end of 2023, 
even though we're going to take a little break for the summer, um, we're going to start picking up speed here. And so again, we're doing two chapters this morning, which doesn't happen very often. Um, But we're going to look at two different stories that at first glance, if you were to read kind of the last half of 17 and and 18 uh, side by side, uh, you might think these are very unrelated, kind of two different things. But as I was, uh, I said this to Shayla, as I was kind of studying and making my notes and kind of writing a few things down, all of a sudden halfway through, I made this realization where I was like, I did not see this coming that direction. God just kind of showed to me very clearly the tie-in between these two chapters. And I hope it'll be just abundantly obvious to you, and, and you're probably a lot smarter than me, and you probably will see it before I even say it. Um, but this is going to be a really, really practical and important and, I think, necessary uh, message for our church and our culture uh, at this particular time that we find ourselves. We're going to push back on individualism, and we're going to remind ourselves of the beauty of the church and the importance of the church, even though the church, as of yet in Exodus, is, is thousands of years from being created in its form that we know today, is we get to see God's plan and God's moving towards that. Last week, we looked at God's testing on the people. So they, um, the people of Israel had gone into Egypt because of a famine. Uh, God had blessed Joseph and the nation of Israel. Uh, but at some point, the new pharaohs, uh, we're not sure when, but at some point they got worried about how numerous these, these Israelites were going to become. And so they uh, put them under slavery and they cry out to God for rescue from that. And God brings Moses onto the scene and uses him to go and to confront the Pharaoh. And, and there's a reminder, and I've said this a million times, but we're going to keep saying this because we need to be reminded of this, is there's a reminder that while God is sovereign and has plans, is, and ultimately those plans are to rescue his people from Egypt, he's going to do it in a way that is different than you and I would expect, and specifically than the people in the nation expected. Their expectation was that God would just miraculously come in and intervene and they would be freed. But God said, no, I'm actually going to use a varying amount of plagues, kind of getting more serious in their scope. Because God's plan wasn't only to rescue his people, but to show his power to all nations so that those nations would see him and that they would bow the knee and surrender. Even some Egyptians would surrender and say, we trust in this one true God. We trust Yahweh. He is the God of all gods. And so we see that kind of happening throughout the plagues, and eventually uh, the Pharaoh sends the people out and and recognizes that he cannot compete against God. And so they go out, and they end up encamped by the Red Sea, and the Pharaoh regrets sending them out because he's lost his slave force. And he goes out to recapture them, and and, and God does this miraculous, probably one of the most well-known miracles in all of Scripture, opening the Red Sea, what, what seemed to be death for the Israelites opens up to be their life, and they walk through the Red Sea, and they are rescued while the Egyptians try to chase after them, and God closes the Red Sea on them. And then last week, we looked at the beginning of their testing in the wilderness, and God saying, will you trust me, the God who has rescued you from slavery, the God who's miraculously brought you through the Red Sea? Will you trust me to bring you to the promised land in my timing as I see fit? Well, the first few chances that they get, they do not trust him. And we looked at it with the manna falling from heaven and the quail uh, coming in. We looked at it with the lack of water uh, in two different passages. 
And, and we continually see a God be very gracious, very merciful to a people that is stubborn and a people that continues to distrust the God who has saved them. Now again, all of that is said simply to remind us that there is nothing different between us and them in that sense. I don't know what your situation is, what the struggles that you face are this morning, but what I do know is that God has purpose in them, and it isn't always just to rescue out of that trouble, but to use that trouble to bring you more close to Jesus. In our Bible study this last week for our men's Bible study, we came across a, a quote from Corey Ten Boom that says this, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. That's the reality, isn't it? Is we so often think that we have the strength, that we can get through this, that we have the wisdom. And it's when we have nothing left that we turn to Christ and go, I need you to intervene. And he is faithful. But again, he doesn't always do it in the way that we would expect. What God's teaching them is don't trust in your wisdom, but trust in my wisdom. And so here we come to a, an interesting story. We're going to look at Israel uh, defeating the Amalekites in their first kind of battle as they get ambushed by the Amalekites. And then a story of Jethro's, uh, sorry, of Moses' father Jethro coming to him and giving him advice on, on how to lead his people. And those seem like very unrelated stories, but as you're going to see, there is a theme of community, a theme of discipleship, and a theme of we need to get rid of our own arrogance and adopt a posture of humility and recognize where help comes from. So let's read 17, uh, 8 to the end, just 8 to 16, and then we'll talk about that, and then we'll jump into 18 in a moment. So it says this, Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and he fought with Amalek, and while Moses, uh, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, and whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, but whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. The Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Kind of a very bizarre text, isn't it? Now, Joshua is mentioned for the first time here. And if you have read ahead or, or maybe you remember your Sunday school lessons coming back to you or if you've recently kind of read through the, the Pentateuch and into the book of Joshua, is Joshua is going to be Moses' successor. Is when Moses finishes the task that God has called him to, is Joshua is going to step into that. And Joshua is going to be the greatest military leader perhaps that the world had ever seen. However, at this point, he is not yet a great military leader, for the people are not even an army yet. Remember, they've been wandering through the wilderness 
And, and whether they've been wandering and Joshua has been walking up to people and trying to teach them military prowess, we have no idea, no way of knowing. But what we do know is they're very limited in, in you know, what they have to protect themselves. And the Amalekites were uh, a group of people that would ambush other uh, smaller groups or other people that looked ill-equipped or ill-prepared for the journey that they were on. And they would plunder them, they would steal things, and they would kill And there's actually a really interesting history that goes back to Esau with the Amalekites. And so if you want to go down a little rabbit trail this week, uh, feel free to kind of explore that and to see kind of what God has done. Because sometimes we come across a people group like this and we go, how come Israel fights against the Amalekites? Like, Like, what did they ever do? Well, they did a lot, actually. And some of that isn't written for us in Scripture, but if you go through the history of it, you get to see and understand that there was a lot of things uh, that some of these nations did against Yahweh, against his people, and against um, the plans of what he wanted to accomplish through his people. So in this story, Joshua gets one day to gather people together and to fight this this uh, well-organized group of bandits that are ready to attack them. And so who's going to win? Well, it's obvious, isn't it? As long as Moses stands with the staff above his head, then the Israelites win. That makes perfect sense, right? The whole point of it is what? Who's fighting? God's fighting for them. We read that in the Red Sea as Moses said, literally, all you need to do is stand there and be silent and God is going to fight for you. Well, God's bringing them on a journey, and, and so now they, they not, they're not supposed to just stand there and be silent. They have a role to play in this, but still it's God who's the one that is fighting for this and not them. Or as uh, Douglas Stewart writes, it was important for the Israelites to understand unmistakably that the only reason they could win against the Amalekites was that God was fighting for them, giving them the victory. See, here's the problem is sometimes we take credit for the good things that happen in our lives. And we say, it's because I worked real hard. The problem with that, of course, is that we know many people in the world that work exceptionally hard for things. How about, and I've said this many times, but how about the mother who walks three miles to go find clean water for her children and walks back? Is she not working just as hard as you are and yet has very little to show for it? See, the point is that we have a role to play, and we have a calling that we're going to be faithful to, but ultimately it's God who orchestrates all of these things, and it's God who's fighting, and, and, and the people, I think, well, the Stanley Cup playoffs are on right now. You can be pretty superstitious about things, like the fact that the Leafs actually got into the second round. You can be, you know, if you ever watch a goalie, I... I'm a goalie, so I'm not taking shots at anybody here. But you watch them skate, and they have a certain way of ritual of how they hit the posts with their stick and rub the hats or the helmets of everyone. who, You know, like just weird things that make no sense because it worked last time. Well, this would be a whole nother level. We're going to go into battle. Moses, can you go hold the staff up? Because then we'll win. It's clear that this is God intervening, God stepping forward so that he wins the victory, so that the people of Israel would see God is fighting for us. And if God is fighting for us, then he is going to be faithful. He's going to bring us into the promised land. And so even though the enemies are going to come against us, what does that matter? We sang that song just a few minutes ago. God is fighting for us. 
But there's another aspect to this, and this is what ties in now to to chapter 18, is Moses is standing there, and he's going to hold the staff up. And and, and a few weeks ago, actually, at our family day service, Peyton did this example with the kids where, do you remember this? The kids held out their hands, and they held these heavy books. Anybody remember that? And they can do it for a short time. But after a while, that weight gets more and more. The weight actually doesn't get more, right? But it feels like it's more and more. I don't know if you want to do this as a family, but maybe go find a big staff out in the, uh, in the forest behind you and just hold it above your head until sundown and see how long you last. But you're going to find out that you can't do it. And in the text, it says that Moses is doing this, and, and clearly God has shown and explained the situation, uh, but Moses' hands grow weary. And so does it say that Moses just sucked it up and persevered and just made it happen? What you see is Aaron and her recognize that Moses is struggling and they intervene. And they go, we're going to help you accomplish this purpose. You see, and we're going to see this as we move into chapter 18. Is there is no such thing, and we talked about this at one of our other Bible studies this week, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. You cannot do it on your own. Moses, the greatest person in history to this point is incapable of saving his people. But God is more than capable. Sometimes God intervenes by opening the Red Sea where nobody does anything. Sometimes God asks for faithful obedience of people to accomplish his purposes. And here Aaron and her step in and they help him all the way till sundown so that the three of them together working can accomplish the thing that God has called them to do. Now, I talked about this a lot in the summer during our Why Church series. But I don't think that this can be ever said enough. You and I desperately need each other to accomplish the things that God has called us to do. We cannot do it on our own. And our culture is constantly preaching an ideology of individualism saying that you are enough. The Bible teaches something very differently. That you aren't enough and you need a mediator to be in your place. Culture teaches us that you have everything you need within you. The Bible teaches that you have nothing in you that's good, not even one bit. Sounds like bad news, except as the scriptures continue, it goes, but there's a God who loves you, not because of what you can do for him, but because he has created you. And so he creates this entity that's called the church, and he gathers us together to unite under the lordship of Christ for one purpose, and that's so that the gospel might be declared to the nation. Well, how do we accomplish that? Well, there's many ways to do that. But the many ways that, are, that can be done to accomplish that, pur- that purpose means that many of us have to gather together to accomplish that. And so as we move in uh, to chapter 18 here, and I'm going to talk about this much, much more as we go, uh, I, I want us to really enter into this idea that I cannot be a lone ranger That me on my own, this is not some kind of, well, my relationship with Christ is an individual thing. That that goes against everything the Bible has taught from page one to the end. 
This is about a community of people. Sometimes people that we don't expect. Here we get to chapter 18. We're going to skip the first nine verses. I'm just going to highlight this. And Essentially what happens is you read that, that Jethro who's Moses' father-in-law, hears about all that God has done and, and he meets up with Moses where, where he's brought the people of Israel and he brings Moses' family back. And there's a little bit of confusion sometimes for people saying, well, why was Moses' family with Jethro and not with him? Um, but scholars have made this real, real simple. Is, is essentially what happens is on that journey, Moses sends his family back home, uh, back to Midian to be safe because, frankly, he has no idea how long this is going to take or what it's going to... What's, what it's going to look like. And so when it's safe, all of a sudden Jethro's heard these things and he goes to meet up with Moses, brings his family back to him and, and they sit down and they have a conversation together and, and it says that Moses tells Jethro about all the things that God has done. And in detail, he explains the miraculous things that, that God did, that how he intervened and how he saved the people from slavery. But there's one thing that I want to note in these first nine verses that's something I think we really look over often. Verse 1 of chapter 18 says, Jethro, the priest of who? Who are the Midianites? What God do they worship? Okay, there's a point there. Jethro is the priest. and In fact, later on, it calls him... um, Well, it gives the implication that he's the high priest or the highest ranking priest in Midian. This story, this first half of the story, is about Moses going to his father-in-law, who is a high ranking priest of another God, of another nation, and telling him all the wondrous works that Yahweh, the one true God, has done. Verse 10. Jethro said, blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, sorry, and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Here's the key verse. Now I know the Lord is greater than all gods. That is a lot more weight coming from someone who is the high priest of another God. Doesn't it? He recognizes the truth of this. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. This is the conversion story of Moses' father-in-law recognizing the very thing that was mentioned over and over at the beginning of Exodus, that God's plan wasn't only to rescue his people from slavery, but to do what? To bring other nations into this by showing that he alone is the one true God. We've already seen some Egyptians have come into this community and they actually have run out into the Red Sea with the Israelites. They've gone through. uh, And now Jethro, a Midianite, also recognizing this is the one true God. In fact, I'm going to renounce my old ways of serving that one God and I'm going to offer sacrifice to the one true God. This is about as amazing a change as could be.
What's really interesting to me is Kenneth Harris, uh, a commentator, wrote this about Jethro's response to this. And he says, Jethro's words and actions represent a more faithful response than came from many of those who had experienced the events in Egypt. Isn't that interesting? The people who had witnessed God's miraculous hand over and over and over and over continue to grumble against Moses and go, man, you brought us out here to die. How dare you save us? We were happier in Egypt. All these things that they keep saying against Moses. But here Jethro's heard about what God had done. And now Moses gives him the details and his response, he's the one true God. He deserves my sacrifices. There's a reminder in there, I think, right, that sometimes those of us who are in the midst of it no longer see things objectively. Sometimes it's clearer to people on the outside what God is doing than it is to us in the midst of it. Let's read 13 to the end of the chapter. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you're doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, well, the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Real quick stop. There's a teaching and a belief out there that the law comes in chapter 20 of Exodus. But what did Moses just say? He's already been teaching the statutes and the laws that God has been giving to the nation. That's going to be important for later, so just take note of that. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for this thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. You shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they are to walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. And place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter shall be... Shall Sorry, they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all the people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. There's a couple things to notice here that I think is really amazing. First of all, notice how fast God uses Jethro in his newfound faith. <laughs> Immediately. So if you're a new Christian this morning, if you have recently come to faith, if you, if you don't really know kind of some of the stuff that we're reading and talking about, all you know is the story of Jesus and, and you've recognized your need for him, the great news in that is God can use you in mighty and powerful ways. You don't need to take Christianity 101 for the next six months before God's going to equip you. God's going to equip you immediately. 
That's great news. The second thing, and this is really important, is that Moses takes the advice of someone that he could probably have very easily dismissed. He could have said, Jethro, you, you don't know our ways. You don't know our customs. You're from another tribe. Don't forget also that sometimes God speaks directly to Moses to tell him what to do. So it could be very easy for Moses to have become arrogant and to not listen to the advice of others. After all, we often see people in positions of leadership or power are easily enticed into thinking more highly than they ought to of themselves and lower of their subordinates. Aren't we guilty of that so often? If you own a business and you've hired someone and they walk in and they say, hey, I have some advice for you. Before they even open their mouth, you've already determined what you're going to do with that advice, haven't you? So often we don't listen to others because, well, there's all kinds of reasons we might think. Rather than go, is there truth to anything of what they say, whether maybe a little bit or whether maybe a lot? Well, what we've read in Scripture is that Moses was the most humble man to ever live. And, and so Moses, God uses in amazing ways, he, he listens to his father-in-law. He puts it into practice. He is unable and he's very aware that he's unable to do this all on his own. I referenced this already, but in one of our Bible studies with our young adults, we looked at Romans 12 this last week. In the video, J.D. Greer points out that the first 11 chapters of Romans are, the, are the, the theological teaching. And then as we get into chapter 12, it begins with practical application. And the first thing that he does is he goes to talk about spiritual gifts. And we talked a lot about this at our Bible study. It seems like a strange place to begin. Why would, why would you go straight there to talk about the practical realities of it? Well, part of it is for us to understand that God has called us and gifted us uniquely for the common good of the body of Christ so that we can work together. You see, I've been given a gift and you've been given a gift. And my gift is not more important than your gift, nor is it more necessary than your gift. And so J.D. goes on to explain, and he says that if you are not actively serving in your local church in some way, then you're robbing them of the spiritual gifts that God has given you to help them. But perhaps more importantly, and he gets real aggressive here, he says that you're being arrogant because you're refusing the help and the giftings of other Christians and the truth that they need to speak into your own life. And as I thought about that, and as we discussed that on Tuesday night, and as that continued to stay with me, and then I got to the text here, I couldn't help but notice and see these parallels. The church is, is thousands of years away, and yet God's already pointing us. It's hard, it's hard to not see the connection, to see what he's creating, and what he's moving towards. Jethro tells Moses, go and find men first to what? Fear God. That's prerequisite number one. Prerequisite number two, that they're, they have integrity and that they hate a bribe. Does that sound like another passage of Scripture, maybe in the New Testament? Where Paul talks about the quality of elders within the churches? Moses, you're not, not able to do this by yourself. Go find other godly men to help you in this. If you're a Christian this morning, let me say the same thing to you. You, you cannot do this on your own. 
The life that you have been called to is not a life that you've been called to live individually, but communally and corporately. If, if Banff Park Church is your home church, then recognize that what God has called you to do is to serve together in mission. And if your focus is on your career, your money, your possessions, not on the spiritual health of your spiritual family, then our priorities need some reshuffling. Again, we live in a very materialistic culture, and that has really rubbed off on us. And I don't point the finger at any individual here. I say collectively, myself included. It's very easy to focus on the things that we want, the stuff that we can buy, the happiness that we think can come from these things. Forgetting that the very thing that we are called to do is to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Jesus and teaching them to obey everything that he has commanded us. That is the mission of the church. That's the mission not for me and for no one else. That's the mission for every follower of Jesus. And so we are called to gather together in the unique ways in which we are gifted to accomplish this. Essentially, what we're talking about here is simply discipleship. And I want to use an example, and and I'm going to pick on somebody who went up to teach Sunday school without naming her. You know, in a couple of weeks, we're having our annual general meeting. And every year we, uh, maybe I'll just back up just a little bit. Our general board uh, consists of a group of people that are voted into various positions by the congregations to help lead various ministries in the direction of the church. And some of those positions uh, come up for um, somebody else to take over every year. And it's becoming increasingly difficult, not just for our church, for churches across Canada, to find people willing to step in because it takes a lot of work and it takes a lot of effort. Well, one of those positions that we have is we call it the ministry coordinator. And this is somebody who steps in and helps all the various ministries of our church speak together. So it's all about communication and administration and pulling people together to accomplish purposes together. And and Deb has, sorry, the person who I wasn't going to name, has done this role in the past. But for the last number of years, it's been vacant. And we've been approaching various people, seeing if they'd be willing to do that. But it's a tough role. And so this year, Deb has said that she will come back on to do this, but her goal, usually it's a three-year term. Her goal is, she said, I'll do it for one year with a real big intent on discipling someone into it. Here's the reality is we have a lot of the same people in our church that do the same positions and their name just keeps getting rolled over because they're the only one willing to do it. The problem, of course, with that is some of the people on our church board and I mean this as delicately and as gently as I can, are getting older. Their unique needs are different now than they were 20 years ago. Their life has taken, it looks different. The things that they're capable of doing look different, and the time commitment that they have is maybe different, and and maybe above all, some of the energy that's required is a little different. And so we need people who have the gifts that God has given. And that's all of you. Because there's no one that has not been given a gift by God to serve. To gather together and to help. And so if if this is a a role that you're like, man, I, 
I would, I would like to do something like that. Or maybe I should say it this way. I feel like God is calling me to do something like that. That you would go partner with Deb because she is going to be a great resource to teach you and show you what does the position look like and, and how can it be done. And I'm only using that one example when there are many others that could be fulfilled. Most churches in Canada right now since COVID have, has kind of been in the rearview mirror are struggling with finding and equipping people to volunteer in various positions for various roles. And so what the challenge that we're going to look at is simply this, is do we believe in the mission of our church to go and make disciples? Because if we do, there's a cost to that. That means that I'm going to put more effort there and less effort other places in my life. And so I'm not standing here to try and guilt anyone into something. Some of you are doing so much to help the church. And thank you so much for your willingness. But perhaps some of you... God is calling you to step into a certain position at a certain time. And maybe you're going, well, maybe I don't have the right gifts to do that. Well, maybe, maybe God can take care of that for you. Maybe there's other people that can equip you and disciple you into this. Maybe God will gift you for a very specific task at a specific time. What we've seen in Exodus is God does things in his time and his purposes, but he uses normal people to accomplish that. Moses needed to equip other leaders for the future health of the Israelite people. The same is true of our church, but even more practically, the same is true of you and I individually as well. On Thursday at our other Bible study, when we finished talking through 1 Timothy chapter 1, sorry, 2 Timothy chapter 1, I challenged everyone to sit down and to write down a couple of names of people that they could disciple and that they would like to be discipled by. My goal is that praying together, that talking about spiritual things, that reading scripture together becomes such a normative thing in our lives that it's not awkward or uncomfortable or weird, but that's just something that we do as Christians. And so I want to challenge you with with the same thing. Who in your life do you see that you could go, man, I would really like to learn from that person's wisdom. Really like to be discipled by them. If you walked up to that individual and said, hey, would you like to enter a discipleship relationship? I bet they would be pumped. On the flip side, there's a lot of young people in our community and they don't have to necessarily go to our church. That you could come alongside and you could say, hey, would you like to get together once a month and just pray together? read a little bit of scripture together, talk about Jesus. Again, my guess is that they would be pumped. There's a discipleship book that I read a few years back that said that 80% of Christians have never been discipled by someone and 100% of them wish that they were. 100% is a pretty big number, isn't it? If we want to be healthy Christians, then we need to be Christians that disciple, that serve, and that work together on mission and on purpose, all under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I really hope that this is the type of church that we want to be. I want to read to you a couple of quotes here as, as we kind of near the end. This is from a book that I read a while back for uh, seminary, and I was really pumped to say these guys' names because one of them's hilarious. One is Kyle Strobel. That's kind of boring. The other one is named Jamin Goggin. 
And that's hilarious to me. I don't know. They wrote a book called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. And this is essentially how are you going to lead those under influence with you? Are you going to do it the way that God or the way that Jesus did it? Where he said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve? Or are we going to live by lording our position of leadership over them? And so they say this directly from the Exodus. They say this. When we go to church, we are reenacting the Exodus, the deliverance from the land of slavery into the kingdom of the Son, and are receiving habits of mind and heart to abide in God as we journey through a land that is not our home. Anything different between the Exodus and now? They go on to say, just as the Israelites pass through the waters of death on their way toward the promised land, the Red Sea, Christians enter the water of death in baptism that we might walk in newness of life. In baptism, we present ourselves to the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection that we may die to our old selves and rise to embrace lives that are hidden with Christ in God. Again, I say, is anything different between walking through the Red Sea and now? When we gather together, we remember that God called us out and called us out with purpose. That we would live in such a way that others see Christ and that they want that and they come to him. But we were called to do that corporately and communally, to serve one another. I think perhaps the greatest way for the world to see the impact of the church is when different people from different places and different cultures who look different, who sound different, gather together and ignore all their differences and unite under the Lordship of Christ to make the gospel known. And the world's going to say, why would you do that? Why would you deal with that person who's super annoying? Why would you constantly serve that one person that you really don't always get along with? Or that sees things differently than you? What the world should see is a group of diverse people who come together and go, our differences are not nearly as important as what draws us together, our similarities, a faith in Jesus. I remember reading that book thinking, when I preach through Exodus, this is going to be central. Not because it's something that I think Goggin, sorry, that's funny, or Strobel wrote And it's brilliant, but because I think God wrote it in Exodus, foreshadowing, pointing us to one day when the church would be created. And again, I am not up here trying to get you to serve because I'm tired and I don't want to serve. That's not the goal. Though I might be tired, but that's a different reason. I think there is a tremendous blessing When we go, I'm not going to do what I want. I'm going to do what God's calling me to do. Because we get to see God at work and we get to see things that really matter. And I shared a story uh, recently about uh, someone who came to our church for a short period of time before he moved back. And the only reason he showed up was because he was on a hike and somebody had the courage to go and share with him the gospel of Jesus. And who came to faith and who came to church, plugged in and now has left and is part of our AGC church uh, out near Edmonton. And who is 
following after Jesus because one person was willing to have a maybe uncomfortable conversation. You have been given a gift by God. And this church needs that gift. But even more importantly, others have been given a gift by God and you need that gift too. God's designs from the beginning was that it was that man shouldn't be alone. When God created Adam, what did he say? It's not good that he's alone. I'm going to create a helper for him. It was true for Adam. It's true for Moses here. It was true in Ephesus when Paul wrote to Timothy about what it looked like to, men, to find elders. It was true for Titus on the island of Crete. It was true for Peter when he wrote to a group of churches in the dispersion in 1 Peter 5. And it's true of you and I today. If you're part of Banff Park Church, or whether you're visiting from another church, my challenge to you is this. Gather together in community and work together for the very mission that we've been called to. And it's not to make more money. It's not to have a better paying job. It's not to have a bigger house. It's to declare Christ and make him known. And what I know is I'm incapable of doing that on my own. I need you. And we need each other. Let's remember this as we continue to read through the Exodus. Let's remember this as we continue to look forward. Let's pray. God, as we read these stories, as we read these events that happened so long ago, it's so easy to see similarities between back then and now. God, thank you for the reminder that there are no such thing as lone Christians, but that you have called us to mission and purpose together. God, thank you that you have given each of us a unique gift of the Spirit, which will bless others. But thank you also that you have not given us every gift so that we recognize that we cannot do it on our own. This has been your plan since the beginning, and we see it all through Scripture. And so, God, I pray this morning that we might consider what are the ways in which we can gather together in Christian community and declare Christ and make him known. In what ways can we let go of other priorities in our life so that we can make the central priority even more important? God, thank you for those in this church family who do so much to serve and to care for and to bring health to this church. Would you encourage them and bless them for their effort? But would you also call other people into this? Would you put a passion on people's hearts for a certain idea or a certain ministry or a certain way in which they can serve? And would you evoke a flame of excitement in them so that they, get a, they just want to do it? So that they step forward. God, we want to be a church that disciples each other and that declares Christ and makes him known. Would you help us accomplish that in your purposes, in your time? Amen. Now, just before we close, I want you to flip to 1 Corinthians. We're just, the first Sunday of each month in our, in our church here, we take communion together. And, and there's this reminder that it's not only 
the practical ministry and the practical things that we do together, but it's the simple little things like coming together and eating a meal together. And while this is just representative of that, is there's this sense that we're brought in community together to slow down and to remind ourselves that everything that I have is from Christ and everything that I need is in Christ. So I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting at verse 23, and then we'll pass out uh, the communion elements and we'll, we'll eat and drink them together in unity of Christ. So let me read this. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Simply put, is that we together eat and drink both to look backward and remind ourselves that it's only through the cross of Christ that we have hope, but also to look forward to one day Christ is coming again. But it comes with a reminder whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Notice he says, without discerning the body. This is a communal, corporate thing. And so when we pass out the elements, we're going to sit quietly for a little while. There'll be a little bit of quiet music playing. Or maybe there won't be, I'm not sure. But as we have that moment... Let's examine our own hearts and let's see, am I focused on the things of God or am I focused on the things of me? And then just allow that thought to go through your mind and to consider what does it mean to be a person who's focused on the things of God? I want us to examine our hearts so that we don't bring condemnation on us for for approaching this in some kind of a trivial or meaningless way. Nothing 